Hey everyone, this is Zach. Uh, this is the guy that is not Zach. <laughs> Hi, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> you found um, me out. And uh, yeah, I, I spoiled your surprise. Uh, yeah, so so today we're talking about uh, Resident Evil Four, um, the the video game, um, and we'll we'll dive pretty deep into it. It's actually got kind of an interesting history, I think um and an impact on the culture of video games um but i guess that's first off, all about the culture yeah <laughs> um first off uh let's let's talk about some of the things that we have been doing recently um did you want to start off or, or did you want me to for this me 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 of course i have to start off because you started okay. off last time it's the only way i can rein you in did i okay Jack. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's my only method um, yeah, so this is uh, rather odd because it's um, normally I touch upon things that uh, either in glancing and past experience have made sort of an impact or a piece of media that I've been chewing on for a little bit. But the bulk of this entire uh, Me, Me, Me time will be based on a show that I watched half of the first season all of yesterday. So I spent five hours <laughs> consuming this media just because I was so taken in um, by the first episode setting up the situation and then the second episode uh, jumping off uh, from that. So the uh, bit of media will be um, uh, Mackenzie Davis's Instagram account. No, no, just kidding. Not that. It's, <laughs> That's a weird jump. <laughs> yeah. It actually does involve Mackenzie Davis, which is how I got there. Okay. Uh, Streaming conscious. It's Station Eleven, the HBO Max show. Oh, I thought you were going to say like Halt and Catch Fire or something. Well, that's see, that's the thing. That's the part that she's most known for. Yeah. Uh, and I have actually seen Halt and Catch Fire, which I won't be talking about during this Mimi Me, except okay. in a uh, a brief mention related to her performance and acting style, which in Halt and Catch Fire, I feel like she, as a character on that show, really had a cross to carry. And that, while it is a good show, uh, especially I think the first two seasons, I think are pretty solid. And the third one's interesting. Yeah. Uh, my, my wife and I kind of watched it um, a couple months ago recently. But I feel that Mackenzie Davis, to bring it back in that show, has to carry the cross of the unlikable female character. Which I I think I is a know. writing I think trope. Sean does that. Who <laughs> the um, uh, what's his name's wife? Oh no! But see, even even in the interactions with what's his name's wife and Mackenzie Davis's character, which I, I forget the name of her character, um, the point that Mackenzie Davis sort of plays is that someone who is emotionally stunted. Uh, controlling of her creative output and et cetera, like a lot of um, Silicon Valley, uh, you know, tech icons of the age where they're like the creative process and that outlet, you know, like a Steve Jobs mythos and et cetera, yeah. or even like a early Elon Musk ethos where like, it's all about like the creation and the ideas and the innovation, regardless of the, you know, the income generation, which obviously, neither Steve Jobs or Elon Musk was 
super heavily invested in not making money. <laughs> they yeah. were very focused on making money, but they also had an ethos to serve, you know, in, in each regard, at least oh, sure, reportedly, sure. you know, that's what they projected. So her character in that show to touch on that, she has an interaction with that character. You talk about the mother figure. Yeah. Yeah. But there are, there are still instances, I, I think from the story and the framing where that mother figure is trying to communicate something to Mackenzie Davis's character that she yeah, really true. needs to hear, yeah. but she's refusing to hear because she's too pissed because yeah. her creativity is being trampled upon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I like her, her character on that show. Um, of course, because you're, uh, what, what would you, what's the word? Uh, um, uh, what is, there's a, there's a, there is a grown-up word for someone who's uh, uh, retaliatorily uh, combative when they feel that their ethos. Defiant. Yes, when they feel that their ethos has been stumbled upon. the The saving grace of I think uh, you, Zach, is that those situations. You're, I mean, I'm not your wife, so I don't know yeah. if you you argue about what snacks you can buy. But the when you when you put your flag in the ground, it's usually for something you know someone's rights are being trampled on right, or right. etc. So it's it's a position yeah. that's yeah, it's not because like you can't get things exactly your way uh, with the snack cake selection, which may happen in real life for you, but I don't know. Um, whereas a character like her, she's oppositionally defiant due to. Right. Uh, you know, I guess feeling like, you know, not having a space of expression and not really having the kind of power that she would want to like create these things and always having to rely on someone else's like investment or et cetera in order to do so. Yeah. Um, Cause she never really stays somewhere long enough to build up enough influence to where she could launch her own thing. That's true. You know, whereas the, the female character, the mother um, I, I hate to call it the mother, but Donna, Donna, Donna. Yeah, yeah, Donna's uh, Donna's role, like she stays somewhere long enough that if she wanted to turn heel and become just like a creative heavyweight, she could do that because she's put the time in and has the investment and the power. The, the thing about it is, and I think the show kind of touches upon that, to not go too long in this, yeah. uh, that that isn't something that someone who's invested in that way would do anyways. They wouldn't play the game up until where they would be able to express themselves in that way. They're just going to demand that right from the outset. Yeah. At least from like a character narrative standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think to come back to station 11. Yeah. So what is station 11 about? I guess. Station 11 is about Mackenzie Davis uh, <laughs> staring at someone, but also looking past them while she's expressing something on her face. And so you can tell that she's very preoccupied with something else while she's interacting with this character. So that's uh, to directly tie back into Halt and Catch Fire. Yeah. Uh, that is something she used to great effect within that show as sort of a, a way to slow down the uh, beat of the scene. And okay. also to indicate like the inner turmoil that she's experiencing in that moment. You know, it's like if I'm staring at you right now, I'm really, you can see that I'm like horrified, but 
but I'm sort of like blanket staring and my yeah, mind's preoccupied with something else. Yeah. <laughs> and so you can see my face transforming, but I'm really, I'm, I'm intensely present, but it's not with you. I'm actually intensely present with what's going on with me right now. Okay. Uh, and that, that ties into the sort of the perspective and the narrative stream of station 11. So to go back to the meat and potatoes, like you were introducing there, station 11 is about, um, an influenza epidemic that, uh, hits, um, the world largely as we can see and decimates society. So we have no idea what any kind of experience like that at all. Like that's, not relating to our current experience in any way when they started filming this well see that's the funny thing i looked that up because i was also curious as to um, the pacing of this so the book was published in 2014 and the series was ordered by hbo max in june 2019 so it was before (laughs) COVID hit the filming was impacted by COVID and they had to, you know, delay finishing up, I think in later, later 2020. Um, so (laughs) it's really terrifying because my wife and I are watching this show through the five episodes we watched. And even after the first episode, I turn to my wife and go, this is terrifying and too close to what an apocalypse scenario actually feels like now. And then uh, I, I immediately after that, I was like, okay, let's watch the next episode. Um, because I'm just a glutton uh, for that. Yeah. Apocalyptic media, I think, really appeals to um, certain perspective and personality types. But there, I think there's also an element of it that you enjoy the investment in the characters of the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and so, I mean, I, I would be curious to know if you also like Westerns, um, because thematically, tip, typically, a po- post-apocalyptic stuff is generally like a Western. Like in terms yeah. Of and pace yeah. Uh, so, I'd really liked True Grit, which I think was the the remake, the nearest Western that I have in recent memory, because it has that same kind of intensity of interaction with characters. Yeah. Um, and I'd, I'd even say, um, there will be blood also feels like a Western in a way. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cause you well, have, you these... know, Oswald has this, um, this book. I, I think the name of the book actually is zombie spaceship wasteland, but he kind of puts forth, pour, puts forth the idea that as a kid, uh, as, as a, uh, kids play and stuff, specifically little boys, you're either drawn to zombies, spaceships, or wastelands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was always a spaceship kid. <laughs> what about what about the zombie wastelands? Excuse me. I, <laughs> I didn't come up with the theory. Hey, hey, hey. Sorry, nerds, I keep diverting from you. <laughs> nerds arguing with the thoughts of other nerds is a tale as old as time, okay? This yeah. same kind of conversation was happening when Homer was ostensibly reciting the Greek tales of legends. And you have other nerds listening, that's not what Odysseus would do. <laughs> like, I think you went off beat there. I think it makes more narrative sense if he goes here first. 
I feel like nerds were arguing that way from oh since the beginning. Yeah, yeah, the offset. And you had some guy who was like, "Fuck this guy, Homer. I'm gonna tell my own legends and tales." <laughs> Absolutely. And he had a smaller, like, insular following of like four groups, but they viewed themselves as more valuable because they were doing the real stuff. Yeah, of course. You know? They're they're the real fans. They're the the true fans. Yeah, yeah, they're the ones who are playing with like. Each individual member is min-maxing out their character and then arguing about who's min-maxing it the best. (laughs) They're like, no, no, listen, listen. An enchanted druid is a much better build than an invisible barbarian. Listen to me, okay? (laughs) All right? You don't get it. (laughs) So, yeah, I could definitely see that. So not to get it off there. But yeah. <laughs> um, so going back to the Station, Station Eleven, the first episode I think is um, just a setup. It has it takes the time to kind of set up the environment and the situation and set some of the initial relationships. But it's almost like um, uh, it's almost like when you make a recipe and you have to like cook a meal. The most important bit of that is. And the actual bit that's actually necessary to even to do such, like let's say you have you don't have any of that stuff at your house, is to go out to the grocery store and get all the items that you're going to cook with. And that's what the first episode does. It gets all the items that we're going to cook with. Uh, so it, it has to do all that lifting. So it doesn't really have the same kind of – it has a little bit. It hints at it. But it doesn't really have a lot of the same kind of tone. and sort of character interactions that you have in the later episodes. Right. Because it has to set stuff up, um, which was fine. Because um, in the first episode, you know, uh, the flu apocalyptic scenario happens. We hear on the news, um, I think either in that first one or later on in the second or third episode, that uh, the flu has a 99% fatality rate. Oh, okay. So it's like a super bug. Yeah. Um statistically it's going to kill everyone except the people that just frequently are immune to it for based on some kind of genetic deviation. Um, Stand like, yeah, kind of a stand like exactly. Um, None of the characters that we've seen. um, Well, yeah, I'm going to go into spoilers. Can we be talking about all five episodes? None of the characters that we see except one rando who appears to actually be immune to it. Um, but then is is quickly dispatched because uh, you know the vibe is we don't want anyone who's had any contact with the virus, yeah. so they're killed, their blood is spilled, and then that even leads to even more insanity because they're like, oh my god, it's probably in his blood. <laughs> um, so that that happens later on the scene. So initially in the first episode, we have a um, a young girl, and I guess for the purposes of not being the most irritating person ever i'm going to look up the cast names that way i can refer to these characters by their names by name rather than yeah it's really really bad because uh one are they all like boring white people names too like this is joe this is also joseph this is gary no no they they start with a little bit of uh diversity there um it's just that everybody's everybody's identified by their face 
um, mm-hmm. and not by a name with me, my brain. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, my brain is like we saw Breaking Bad, and uh, we saw that a couple years ago, and then years after that, I rewatched Terminator Two with my wife, and there's that scene where, um, let's see, also Breaking Bad characters because I'll have to reference the character. Oh, I know what it is. His uh, his name is uh, Hank. Hank Schrader, played by Dean Norris. Yeah, Dean Norris. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Zach is the name man. I'm the face man, I, I'd say, probably, <laughs> largely. So, anyways, we're watching Terminator 2. There's that scene where uh, the scientist is holding the bomb, and a SWAT team comes in, all in, like, full gas masks. Like, it's really dark lighting, and they're coming in. And then I look at the main guy who's like, he's got a bomb. And I'm like, that's that's Dean Norris. That's Hank Schrader from Breaking Bad. And my wife was like, no. And I'm like, yeah, that's him. Like, I can see his face. Um, even though, you know, it's like all obscured. Yeah. So well, he's also like... one of the fucked up looking um, mutants in uh, Total Recall. He's got the weird, like, cutout on his face. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Like, he gets some screen time and some lines. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so to go into that, yeah, Station Eleven, uh, this character played by Mackenzie Davis, as the older version, it's we initially meet uh, a young Kirsten, uh, played by Matilda Lawler. I don't know if people care about names. It seems like people do. But um, <laughs> in any case, this young Kirsten, uh, we're introduced to her with a, another character, Jeevan, who's at a play. And he witnesses the main actor who is playing King Lear um, on stage, conceivably having a heart attack. Uh, he looks to be in his 50s, so he doesn't, you know, he's not like, uh, um, you know, uh, what is it? Um, it wouldn't be unexpected for a person. Yeah, it would be, it'd be kind of unexpected for someone of that age to have the heart attack. And it's later kind of hinted. I mean, this is a possibility that he either had a heart attack or it's this influenza thing that actually killed him. Mm-hmm. Um, but it looks like he has a heart attack because he doesn't look especially flu-less, uh, fluish, but it's hard to tell with like the King Lear makeup because yeah. at the end of that scene, he's supposed to be exhausted. He's supposed to have bags. Yeah. You know, he's supposed to be an old man at the end of his life. Um, looking upon his legacy. So uh, Jeevan is the first person to get up from a seat, leaving his then girlfriend sitting down, obviously mortified because she's like, "Oh my god, why is my boyfriend rushing the stage?" And you have the ushers like yelling at him, "Sir, what are you doing?" No one getting up to like realize, other than one of the actors on the stage, that this King Lear actor, he's um, he's having a heart attack. Uh, and the King Lear actor is played beautifully by. Um, uh, Gail Garcia Bernal. Um, he's a beautiful actor. And so he's playing Arthur Leander. And so okay. he dies within the first episode. Um, <laughs> but his influence kind of carries on in later parts of the series. Um, oh, so it's kind of a recurring thing anyway, then. It's well, not his... like they burned out Gael Garcia Bernal on this one. Yeah, yeah. He has, okay. he has other scenes later. Yeah, where he's just as beautiful and just as charismatic um, and, and whatnot. So the young Kirsten is actually like his study. She's like an understudy for him. 
even though in, she's conceivably eight. So she's not really an understudy, I guess, within the yeah. that uh, the bounds know. of believability. of. Well, I think it's also like within the bounds that she has like a, a non-talking role within King Lear. She plays like one of the young child characters just kind of on stage. Right. So she could technically be an understudy, but it feels more like he's just kind of letting her in his dressing room area to just keep an eye on her, you know, and whatnot. Right. And uh, apparently he did give her an acting lesson uh, with her first time that she performed and stuff, which comes up, comes up later. Okay. So um, she's as much as an understudy as somebody in the real world would be in that situation. Uh, so in any case, um, Jeevan, who's the character, the guy character that rushes the stage, you know, you get a sense of, you know, this is a guy that's driven to do the right thing, even though it's difficult and not really popular and not something that, you know, other people are really going to buy into immediately. Um, so this uh, young Kirsten character uh, is sort of left bereft because this thing happened to Arthur Leander, uh, John Bernal Garcia's, uh, sorry, Gail Garcia Bernal's character, um, Arthur. Uh, and really, just for here, I'm probably just going to refer to the character names. So okay. you you can look up the IMDb if you want to see who's playing that role. Yeah, um, it just makes it easier. So <laughs> Arthur Leander, uh, his death is a really big thing. You know, it's it's a performance. I think because I think it's supposed to be set in Chicago. I think I kind of missed that in the initial like pump up. Um, so it feels like a Broadway performance, but I think ostensibly it's in Chicago. It would um, make sense with acting, just given the number of uh, theater and such. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think the show's like actually that initial scene set in Chicago because um, it's oh, like okay. the the lake thing. There's like a lake there, you know, uh, Lake Michigan. I don't know. Um, so in any case, to to continue on. Arthur's death causes a bunch of havoc. This young Kirsten character gets uh, left alone, basically, because her primary caretaker hops into the ambulance with the main character, Arthur Leander's character, and so just leaves her by herself. Uh, she ends up, the her caretaker ends up having the keys that uh, young Kirsten character needs to get into her brownstone. So Javon... Uh, sees this girl standing outside by herself after he already led her to the caretaker and made sure she found her. Mm-hmm. Sees her left by herself. He's supposed to go visit his girlfriend, but instead he's like, well, hell, I got to make sure this eight-year-old girl gets home by herself, you know? Sure. So he hops on the L train. He gets a call from his sister that this influenza pandemic is occurring. Um, and his sister is like, you know, importing to him that like, the city is fucked. Like what yeah. we're seeing here is like the highest fatality rate. Like this is not like the regular flu. This is like a super bug. That's Which just you see in cities just because everyone is packed so tightly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So she tells him to go to his brother's house, Frank, and to buy a bunch of supplies, go there and barricade the door. Um, because shit's just going to get really real. So, he goes and he he literally buys $9,800 worth of groceries. And those are like, it's like seven or eight like from grocery, a grocery cards. Store or... Yes, from a grocery store. 
Yep. And he just like I think I think he just puts that on like his emergency credit card. Um, and you know he talks about it's how not where he I would go for for um, food uh, like non perishable food, but okay. <laughs> well, see, it's like the middle of it's funny because it's like the middle of a winter storm in Chicago at that point. So it is like it looks like it's below freezing. Uh, would they have had? Ten thousand dollars worth of groceries on the shelves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially a big mega store. Yeah. Well, it's no, a big I'm enough just saying, store. If it's a big enough storm and they're cut off, like most grocery stores don't have. Oh, we'll like see. If there's when a they... rush and then weather cuts people off, like they're not going to have access. This is, the the way this ostensibly sets it up is that this is not the kind of virus that takes a couple days to kill you. Uh, oh, okay. It's like. A so few hours. Stuff, yeah. It's yeah, like a hour. Okay. And it hits so fast. The his sister, when it pans out from her scene, like she's trying to help these kids out and trying to calm them down because all their parents are in the ER. Yeah. And then it pans out outside, and the entire parking lot area, uh, especially directly in front of the hospital, is just packed with cars. Like they're stopped in front of there. Yeah. Uh, and people are trying to load in and they're having to deal with like uh, people being sent over from other hospitals in the area. Cause it just, it seems like it just kills you within hours. Yeah. Um, Which funny side note, I was actually listening to a podcast with a, with a, an epidemiologist um, mm-hmm. talking and uh, what she was saying is, you know, look, this sounds cold, but um th- the way a pandemic spreads, obviously, <laughs> for like, you know, like the stand and stuff, like you're dead in a matter of hours, too. Um, that's kind of a self-solving problem, because mm-hmm. at some point, if it kills you quick enough, no more virus, because they can't get a host. Yeah, It's far more insidious to have what actually happened in the real world, where it's like a two-week incubation period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, sorry, I, I I keep interrupting you. <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's good. The uh, me 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 time is uh, free fall, free fall. It, yeah, for it's all. <laughs> it, it's an interesting uh, format name because it actually involves like interaction from the other person. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, that's kind of how we set it up. Yeah. So, um, so in any case, uh, yeah, he buys like near ten thousand dollars worth of groceries. It looks like eight carts long. He hitches them all with like one of those bungee cords. And then the, the girl is like leading from the front and he's like pushing. So she yeah. kind of like gently moves it. So I won't go into like all the little details because you could just watch the show. Um, but uh, she ends up staying with him and his brother. Um, she tries to leave by herself, but then he makes up like a scenario that, oh, your parents just contacted me. Like I tried to text them. They say that, you know, they're stuck at Lake blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's okay to stay with me. They know my brother and stuff. Because he's really just concerned about her because he realizes the gravity of the situation. Um, And letting her go by herself to go catch a taxi, uh, he realizes that, one, that's not safe for an eight-year-old girl. But, two, he's just sending her off to her death. uh, Because he's avoiding contact with anybody else. Um, Like, there's a scene where they see a car like revving into like a tree, but it obviously like slow drifted. And so he goes to approach it and then he sees like, you know, someone leans their head on the window shield. It's obvious they're sick. Like they're at death's door 
And so they try to open the door and he like slams it shut and he's like, don't get out of the car. You know, I'm going to call an ambulance for you. Sure. And obviously he's, he's not going to call an ambulance for them <laughs> because he knows one, that there's nothing they can do for him. And two, uh, they're all capped out. Like his sister works at the, you know, the major hospital in the city. Right. So um, he knows that like, if I just let this girl go, she's just going to die, you know? So I have to bring her with me, you know, regardless of just how weird this is. Um, but he does indicate like, Hey, this is a choice, you know, to come with me. Um, and then kind of like deceives her, et cetera. So if I miss out any points in the details where someone's like, that's not what happened. It's more, I glossed over it. So I'm not just repeating the whole episode. Um, (laughs) just getting the big bits. So in any case, they, uh, continue on and the episode ends with them emerging from the apartment after day 80. And uh, it's pretty great. That kind of sets up the environment because then you don't know, okay, what are they wandering into? What is the world like? Mystery, I think it's like I talked about before with some of the Resident Evil games, I think is so important to story, Uh, especially um, as a mechanic to trying to draw people in um, to continue to want to watch. So the second episode, we come off, she's uh, year two. Um, and obviously, uh, Jeevan, the character that was protecting her, is no longer there anymore. We don't know exactly know why, but we can assume that, you know, something weird happened. She bumps into this, uh, traveling, uh, band of performers, uh, the traveling symphony, they call themselves. And they basically hold m- full orchestrated renditions of Shakespearean works. Oh, I've heard of this book. They're mm-hmm. the book that this is based on. Okay, yeah. all right. <laughs> yeah. So that's done really, really well. Yeah. Um, and you can see that the intensity of the character interactions, especially with how they're portrayed, is very stage theatrical in style. Not from a cinematography sense, at least not so much in that like we're pacing out, you know, we're like 20 feet away watching these interactions, but mostly in the sense that you have entire scenes that are composed of maybe two or three characters interacting. And in a post-apocalyptic scenario, it's like Shakespeare in the apocalypse, basically, because the, these character interactions are very, can be very tense and there's, there's a lot of interaction and the stakes are really high. Like they are in other apocalyptic media. So, um, you see the traveling band perform, um, you get to meet some of the other supporting characters. Um, and I'm just going to kind of fast forward, I guess, to the, the bits that I think were so um, appealing in my, my mind from, from okay. watching it. There's a character that they meet later on um, who advises like he's a fan of the Traveling Symphony. And he has like a, a kid with him, like a young kid, a very weird looking young kid. Um he just has one of those it's facial expressions. Or... Huh? Yeah, I, I was joking. <laughs> no, it's like uh, if you remember um, the, uh, what is it? Um, to come back to Resident Evil, uh, it was, I think, directed by one of the older Resident Evil uh, horror directors, this video game something evil evil some we've talked about it before 
Evil Within? Uh, yeah, The Evil Within. Okay. There's a character in that, the one that's always mumbling to himself. He's like, losing my mind, losing my oh, mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah that one. Uh, okay. The kid the kid just has the kind of that weird vibe. He doesn't say anything, <laughs> but he just has kind of that weird, like, off-putting vibe. Um, so, um, in any case, they meet with him. It's obvious that uh, Mackenzie Davis is now playing the older Kirsten character is really not feeling the vibe that that guy is giving off. Um, he says he's a fan. She grills him on, um, you know, what place he saw in the last city that he said that he saw them in. Cause they were obviously would be doing certain performances at that time. Right. And he, they know the name of the place. So that passes. But then he says that this kid that's with him is his son and that his wife died. Um, and so like, he's trying to take care of his son. And then he also has like a foot cast on like a full foot cast. Um, not like an actual cast, but one of those Velcro ones that you can strap on. Yeah. Like a boot, I think it's called. And, um, so it's like, this guy is obviously trying to appear, um, vulnerable. You know, he's, it's a sympathetic kind of play and that's how she's feeling it. She's like, you're really just trying to like win on our sympathy here, but I don't trust you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you feel like that's because your character has, um, has had to deal with situations like that growing up. Right. Um, Cause she's a child of the epidemic. Like she had to go out and survive and she grew up and, you know, after year two, she obviously lost Javon in some way. Um, and she met a member of the traveling symphony um, but even then, like she knew how to like guard herself. Whereas the younger girl that's with her, uh, I think, um, Alexandra is a child that was born after kind of the epidemic. So all she's known is a traveling symphony and like communicating with people. And this is what life is rather than, you know, within this safe kind of traveling symphony bubble, whereas, Kirsten's character is like I grew up in places where people were just going to kill you and murder you so like I don't trust you right off the bat regardless of what your story is and she brings up the fact that you know this guy says that's his kid and he's like she's like he's got to be what like 17 or 18 and the the, they don't know him as the prophet (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, Tyler I think what he says his name is he um he looks maybe in his 20s. He looks to be around the same age that uh, Kirsten's character would be. So he's like, that is so not your son. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, um, and she asks, you know, like, what was your uh, your wife's name that died? And he goes, Rose. And, uh, and so she's like, oh, okay. And then later on, they're like a Rose by any other name. You know, almost like a Shakespearean reference. Yeah. Like he obviously just pulled that out. You know, because he's like, it doesn't really matter what her name is. Um, I'm also not telling you who I really am. You right. know, what what does it matter? You know, because this is just something I'm making up anyways. But the interaction with them, that scene, that tension scene is one of like the tensest scenes I've had in recent memory. It's it takes that format where you have someone and they're meeting someone in a in a post apocalyptic scenario and they're not quite sure, like, are they able to trust this person? 
and it continues on and it drags that and you see this tit for tat where this character tyler uh who we know is tyler also known as the prophet he knows that she knows that he's not on the up and up but there's no direct declaration of like yeah i don't fucking trust you in, in so much as like you need to just leave but he knows that he's aware it's kind of like when a wolf you know meets another wolf yeah you know you know or when a con artist meets another con artist standoffishness yeah <laughs> yeah they there's like tension there and she's literally holding a blade throughout the majority of the scene like she does not fuck around <laughs> i mean <laughs> and you feel it too she's so committed to it and the, the other character, Alexandra, is just so treating it like it's normal. She's like, hey, there's this guy. I met him. He's just talking to me. You know, it's no See, big deal. That seems unrealistic. I think it's much more realistic for someone to be like, here's my knife. Yeah. Here's a fucking knife. I yeah. talk while I'm holding this knife. That's well, how that, you know what I'm saying is important. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Traveling Symphony also, uh, you see this earlier in the episode, I think, allows people to audition to become members. Yeah. So you can become so like greeting outsiders within a formal process of like, hey, I want to come to performance or even greeting fans is like something that is done. But the traveling symphony stays on a very particular circuit like they don't deviate. Oh, okay. I think from around I think it's like Michigan. I can't really tell. But they don't they deviate around the lake. They go over. They they continue to circle right around the lake. They don't veer off path. Uh, They don't uh you know do anything other than that hit these kind of civilization points around there because they know the path they know the people they know the townships etc um and you see later on that when a, a stranger just wanders into the camp all of them like a bunch of you know macaws or birds they yell stranger they go stranger stranger and that kind of echoes so that the rest of the group knows that a stranger is entering um but like a young, like a younger, more naive person, Alexandra's character is like, oh, it's a person, you know, they seem nice, you know, and she's never known like bloodthirsty people. Yeah. She's never known an environment where people are just out to just destroy you or manipulate you or use you. Like everyone she knows are other artists performing in there. And also you can see her character is kind of uh, loopy. Like she's very uh, pixie, pixie like, like kind of like the pixie oh, girl trope, like a, like a like a manic pixie dream girl. Yes, okay. yes. Except she's not really put as like an object of desire. She's just okay. a manic pixie dream girl within her own universe mm. and like within her own bounds. Um, she wears like this weird outfit thing that Hannah was like, I'm, or you know, my wife is like she's confused every time she sees it. She's like, what is this girl wearing? It's, I can't make sense of what it is. And it's just like, if you had a... people live in a post-apocalypse doesn't mean that they just start, like, randomly putting things on. No, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> to go back to the Shakespearean plays, they don't have access to costuming. Yeah. You know, like you would have. So there's one scene um, where Mackenzie Davis's character comes in, uh, and she's she's wearing a sort of like uh elizabethan like uh shawl thing what do they call that the fluffy oh yeah the collar yeah the fluffy collar yeah. but it's made out of um golfing gloves like golfing gloves that are okay. sewn together yeah, in a that. circle yeah. yeah 
And so, all the other costuming is just as creative because they don't really have access to, they have access yeah. to what they have. Right. Um, so I think there's one scene where she's playing Macbeth and she has, it looks like these like brown, green, like uh, pool noodles, like flapping around her. They're not really pool noodles though. They look more like a fabric of some kind, like almost yeah. if they're like tinted jeans filled with stuffing. Yeah. But they're coming out. She looks like a like a, a noodle monster. But it works for the scene. So and so the the to come back to that, the tension that's evident in their interaction between this guy Tyler, who's you know, the prophet and Kirsten's character is so intense. Um and uh, it ends up that he's actually there to try to recruit like the young kids because what the prophet does, like all creepy uh, cult leaders, which what he is, um, he recruits uh, the children. He doesn't recruit adults. He only recruits children because they're the ones who don't remember the before times. Like they're, they're new and and so one of his little phrases is, you know, uh, it's something like um, there, there is no before now or something like that. There is no before now. There's only like now. And um, he doesn't want to build up civilization back as it was before. He just wants to build something new and different because he's obviously, you know, uh, a charismatic sociopath. So, yeah. Um, so in any case, uh, that's largely where the story kind of ends up because he infiltrates, uh, he does some other things where he brings two other kids that he ended up abducting or having leave the camp. They come back. The camp since, um, well, the Traveling Symphony comes to uh, an old establishment as part of their circuit where they do a performance and that township just has just experienced the prophet. Like the prophet came in a really creepy manner. He brought a kid, said it was his kid. Uh, and then he left. And then he came back again with a different kid saying that that kid was his kid. Hmm. And then he did that again. And they asked him like, what are you doing? And he's, he just smiled and laughed apparently is how the exposition goes. Um, but he ends up, he talks to the kids that are there and he's very charismatic. Um, and it ends up being that uh, um, his dad was the actor that we see die in King Lear in the very first episode, uh, Arthur Leander. So this guy ends up being Tyler Leander, which you kind of get a feel like right off the bat. The best mysteries or like reveals are ones that you kind of see coming. Yeah. But you're still like interested in how like they're gonna draw it together, you know. Um, I think these days it's very hard for someone who's consumed a lot of media to be like, oh, I had no idea. Um, <laughs> and if you're relying on surprise, I mean, surprise. There's people that read the end of books and go to the last episode before they start watching the series. Um, Are there really people like that, or is that just yes. Billy Crystal and how Harry met Sally? <laughs> I've I've heard I've heard I heard a uh, one person uh, I think who did that. It was my my wife was mentioning this person and how they would like watch the last episode. Really, that yep. just seems. Yeah, I don't know. I think for me, it feels like a power thing. Like it feels like a power. Well, there's actually two directions for it. There's people that can't deal with narrative tension, which. I don't know how these people exist, 
because since you, we've been surrounded by fires, like people have had to wait <laughs> till you give like the last of the tale. Yeah. And then there's people I think who like having control and knowing where, where it heads out, uh, where like the story is supposed to go. Cause they don't like being in the dark. And so it's like a control thing. See, um, I could see like if you were into well, it, you couldn't do this with mysteries really. But like if you were reading a book that's not a mystery, if you read the last chapter, you can be like, okay, how do they get there? So like from a, a narrative perspective being like, okay, how do these characters interact and ping off of each other to get to this point? See, the thing is though, <clears throat> but I, I I don't I wouldn't do that. I'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> that that's the one instance that I can see of someone doing that, like not for weird control purposes. Well, see, that's I kind of attribute that in the you know in the first sort of example, rather than control based purposes. Um, yeah. I understand less about the control kind of person. It's more just like hypothetically, I could see someone having to do it this way. But even like if you think of like the the Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan, like that first book. How yeah. is reading the last chapter really going to give you tremendous insight as to how you get there? You know, it won't. It won't. It won't. I mean, you could you could predict that. I would say argue that the the first two books, like, and I know that that was an example, but mm -hmm. um, you know, the first two books in that series are also kind of fantasy book the novel, like. Mm -hmm give you insight into who those characters are but but yeah no like i i, I take your larger point of like you, you can't really unless you're working with three characters yeah <laughs> it's you know that the only scenario where i see that really works is like if you give a mouse a cookie you know and if you go to the end and you're like oh i guess this mouse does want more stuff if you give him a cookie you know if the narrative is that simple then yeah you're gonna get insight yeah into yeah. it but otherwise it's going to take so many deviations and yeah. twists and turns that what what are you doing in in that sense it's more just like just read a book on screenwriting or like you know the mythic structure yeah i think it's a from what from what i understand it's a big writerly um yeah conceit uh i know my wife's mother i think she as advised she does that as well occasionally like we'll read the last page or the last whatever because from a writerly perspective, she wants insight into sort of where it's going, I guess. Yeah. But I also think there's there may be like a little bit of like, not not in a bad way, like control of detention. Because she also will like watch something and wants to know when like the scares are coming. So that she can <laughs> anticipate the scares. And it's like... There is a website called DoesTheDogDie.com that my wife frequently references if we're watching something and a dog appears on screen. I mean that's cute. I think that's adorable. Because <laughs> that's if if does the dog die was more like what is the ending of each narrative thread within shows that you watch, yeah. and you can put like within Angel like does Angel get his soul back, and it'll give you like an answer, and it's yes, like well, eight times. <laughs> why are you even watching this if you don't want to find out? Read the wiki articles. <laughs> You know, and again, it's it's a personality thing, and I think there's other reasons to it. And right on top of that, all people can consume media however they want. Oh, sure, sure. I'll say that as a caveat. 
may not I'm make just... sense, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also free to critique how they consume media. And I also fully expect and encourage people to critique how I consume media as well. <laughs> it's not that serious. Yeah, it's really not. <laughs> so in, uh, in any case, to go back to that, you get uh, the prophet characters played by Daniel uh, Zavato, which I think I only kind of bring up because is he does have that intensity um, that he brings on screen within his interactions of someone who is charismatic but you can definitely feel that they're hiding something so um in any case yeah kids come back in uh to this town that recently lost them the traveling symphony's playing there she's already tried to take out the prophet guy uh unsuccessfully obviously um kirsten's character um and um so the last episode i watched like they had reset up this township and reset up the minefield that used to just be like a farce. Like they put mines active around, but there were no mines. Right. But then they actually put the mines back in because of what an asshole the prophet was. He literally took all the kids out of the town. Yeah. Like everyone's children that they've had after this apocalypse occurred are gone. Yeah. And so two of the kids come back in who were, the townships, I think they're his kids, the leaders' kids, the township leaders' kids, and they have uh, landmines strapped to them. And so the kids, Kirsten sees one of them, tries to catch one. Oh. I know it is fucked up. <laughs> it's fucked up. And this show is so intense; it's so good. I need to see where it where it eventually leads to, but it's so good. Um. Anyways, I, I won't try to go on too long. So anyways, the last scene that I saw in episode five is the kids come and they they come and give their dad a hug. And they go, there is uh, no before now. And obviously when they hug him, they set off the landmines and they just blow themselves and their dad to smithereens. Yeah. Uh, so it's so fucked up. But it's it's the kind of stuff to talk about it in perspective to apocalyptic media it's the kind of narratives and kind of character interactions that I wanted to see more of within like the walking dead series and sorry for the walking dead fans. If you're still watching season 11 or 12, whatever the final season is now, um, you can love, you can love that show and it can be giving you exactly what you're looking for. But the kind of stuff that I wanted in it is what I'm seeing in the station 11 show. Whereas more about these intense character interactions. Um, because the a zombie apocalypse isn't really about the zombies. And any oh, I think no, no. <laughs> any narrative or piece of media that focuses too heavily on the zombies, I think really misses the point of apocalyptic yeah. media, which is to uh not to um fetishize, you know, wiping the slate clean, um, but more like that happening and really increasing the stakes for all the character interactions. Because in a piece of, like a a regular family drama, you have a family argument, right? It is what it is. You're invested based on the interactions. In apocalyptic media, you have a family drama, and it might make one of those family members put themselves in a situation that is really not safe. Right. Because they leave the camp, or they leave the area, or they interact with someone they really shouldn't have because they're being rebellious. So all the stakes for character interactions are heightened. Yeah. Um, and you also get to 
also you do also do not have societal infrastructures um and depending on how far past the apocalypse you are it could be designing a new world it could be a yeah. post-apocalypse you know? yeah yeah so you have those aspects of uh getting to see people remake their own uh societies which you see yeah. if you watch like a commune documentary or something yeah like people restructure what they think society is but then that gets weaved into uh, a narrative of post-apocalypse and so there's other like narrative threads that surround that and so those are some of the interesting things and even like going to get food or getting water or any of these other like very mundane things all have high stakes related to them hmm. and um these characters and their interactions and singular people become very important within apocalyptic narrative because every person has an impact. Um, If you meet someone like, uh, what is it? um, From the walking dead, the uh, baseball bat wielding guy, I forget what his name is. Oh, Negan. uh, Negan. Yeah. Negan, because of his character bluster and charisma and drama has a big effect on the narrative of the story. You know, he's just one guy. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Um, so that's what I think, for me, appeals most about a I would argue he's like. probably... I know that this, this is also a tangent. I would argue that he is also probably one of the more interesting characters on that show. Um, yeah. And from I've what I've seen through, like, season... I think I, I watched up until, like, season seven or eight. Whenever mm-hmm. he shows up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think um, my understanding, because I think I watched a little bit after Negan as well, is uh, he's a lot like um, the original character, the sheriff. Um, Rick. Yeah. Rick, if you combined him with Shane, you know, yeah. um, and you even see Rick becoming and acting more like Negan does as the series kind of goes on from my understanding. Cause I stopped shortly after. Um, that seems accurate. Cause like my, my brother loves that show. Like he, he and his wife watched that and uh, fear the walking dead, which I just bounced hard off of. <laughs> I did not like, I, I, I think I checked out the DVDs from the library because I didn't want to like put too much of an investment into it. Mm-hmm. And I watched the like two hour pilot and I was like, eh, I'm good <laughs> but apparently it goes in interesting directions um, that's that's what i've heard as well i think uh fear the walking dead from yeah. what i hear is gives probably more of what i'd like but yeah i'll definitely recommend this show to him because that sounds like the type of thing that he likes he was always a, a, a zombie and wasteland kid like you <laughs> yeah it's so good it's so so good the first i'd say the first two episodes you got to give it the two episodes because the first one just kind of sets it up. Uh, but there's still interesting stuff in the first episode. Okay. Um, and then the second episode just kind of uh, carries you on into what the rest of the narrative is going to be. Um, so, yeah, I think that's my my me, me, me time. It's a really interesting show if you like that kind of media. Yeah. I'm probably going to uh, mainline the other five episodes in a row. <laughs> Very soon. recording you're just like right, <laughs> yeah. tap the tv yeah. into my vein and yeah <laughs> let's go guys not to make light of drug addiction and anyone dealing with answer such issues 
Uh, you know, I've, I've yes, known I people. I apologize for callously doing that. <laughs> I've known people in my life who that's really kind of messed them up yeah. and they've recovered and some who haven't recovered. So I realized the severity of that. Yeah. We're really just making a Sorry, crass I joke. Sorry, I was from tapping my veins. <laughs> We're just making a crass joke between two dudes recording a podcast together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was great, great, uh, great show so far. Highly recommend it. Um, yeah, I'm great to see Mackenzie Davis get to stretch out. I'm sure she's done other great work, but yeah, I feel like um, female lead writing, which I won't go too far in, sometimes gets to these tropes of where we're writing these characters as annoying female characters. And like, why can't they just do what the other characters want them to do? Um, and so I think uh, sometimes that just comes across as... I guess kind of clunky because um, it's not really written from uh, from a fair perspective because um, you're not really getting inside that character, anyways. Yeah. But yeah, that's uh, that's my engagement with uh, Mimi us time. Okay, gotcha. Well, uh, let's see. I'm going to piggyback, I guess, off of your Shakespearean. Oh God, stuff. we're an hour in. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> this is dangerous. My uh, so my wife and I watched um, uh, a movie that just came out. Uh, I think A twenty four has it in theaters selectively. Uh, if you have Apple TV Plus um, or Apple Apple Plus a- Apple TV Plus, um, it's one of the movies there because Apple actually paid for its production. Uh, the tragedy of Macbeth. Um, <clears throat> it's really really interesting. Um, so it's a half of the Cohen brothers. It's a uh, Joel Cohen uh, direct writing and directing. Um, and then, you know, Francis McDormand, his wife plays uh, Lady Macbeth, which she does a fantastic job as always. Um, Denzel Washington is the title role Macbeth. <laughs> um, and it's, it's interesting. The, um, it's not very long. Like I want to say it's maybe an hour and a half or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's funny. My wife and I were, we're both English majors in undergrad. And so we've read Macbeth a lot. <laughs> right. Um, and it's, it's interesting how they were able to shift the perspective and deal with the witches and things like that just through it being black and white and then the heavy, heavy use of digital cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a, there's a special feature under Apple TV, which I highly recommend anyone watch if you're interested in the behind the scenes movie making stuff where they, they show you the, like, um, I don't know if this is what they're using. I know a lot of, uh, productions use unity for their digital cameras where you can actually just, layer that layer the scene with them have your actors interacting and then boom now you're in a castle in scotland (laughs) and you're just on a green screen Um, oh yeah yeah no i've heard i've heard more use of that lately in the industry yeah 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 it's it's really fascinating um there's some things that were cut and and it's it's funny when it came up I, i made the joke um that you know written by joel cohen and i'm like 
can you really say you wrote? <laughs> <laughs> because it it follows me. Like it they they have actors delivering the lines mm-hmm. in the original, right? Yeah. And it's funny, like I had to turn subtitles on just because the way English the syntax worked at the time mm-hmm. um it's it was much harder for me to parse that just listening to it than than reading it yeah um, but yeah. it really works like the the actors they don't sound like they're i mean granted it's denzel washington's a shakespearean trained actor francis mcdormand is as well like it sounds like two people having a conversation rather than two people reading lines that they yeah. memorized mm-hmm. like which is very difficult to do oh yeah yeah you have to internalize that <laughs> um, to such a great degree where you can express yeah. it yeah yeah well and and um th- there was a little interesting tidbit about just about the rating is like i happened to look at it because you know that we both know several people who are teachers and it's like i would recommend this someone show this to their like high school class if they were learning you know macbeth and so when my wife said that, I, I pulled it up and I was like, oh, well, this is R-rated. They would have to get like parental permission to do. And I don't understand why. Like there's a there's a scene, there, there, there's a decapitation scene, but it's so quick that it's not like, you know, it's like how it would be done if it were performed on stage where like the person falls away and there's like stuff that comes out. And, then, and that's it. It's not like, you know, the reality of someone hacking someone's head off. Cause you can't really cut a head off of one clean. I don't, I don't know. The, the video mouth. I saw way back a couple years ago when clicking a random link would tell me otherwise. Really? I, I've never, like I've, I've come across a couple of those videos too. And it's never like a clean. Stroke. It, it, it seemed pretty clean to me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, also, this is a different type of sword. This is different. Anyway, all I'm <laughs> saying is that it's not. It's it doesn't belabor the violence involved. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very quick flash of a scene, and yeah. the rest of it is just Macbeth is presented. It's not like you know the Christopher Lambert starring version of Beowulf, where it's like, yeah, we're gonna get a penthouse playmate and have her fuck everyone. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen that, by the way. Christopher There's a Chris, Lambert. Christopher Lambert plays Beowulf in a an adaptation of Beowulf that's post-apocalyptic, and he I forget the actress that plays Grendel's mother, but like she um let's see, Beowulf Lambert. She like fucks her way through the camp and that's that was apparently what what they wanted to do with that is is uh hire who who was it i feel like it's you and like seven people that saw this movie yeah probably okay she wasn't a uh, playmate she was a uh or penthouse playmate she was a playboy playmate of the year um but yeah she's she's a succubus and she goes through the can and and like there's machine guns and shit like it's it's not a very good movie um <laughs> that says nothing about how much zach enjoyed it by the way guys this is yeah, no it really isn't um 
but uh but yeah no i i really recommend uh the tragedy of macbeth uh it's a very good adaptation um of the work so good that i i would definitely recommend you know teachers somehow skirt the rules and show this to kids zach Zach would also like to state that he recommends teachers show beowulf 1999 the rendition (laughs) with christopher lambert as well um yeah no that's that's an acceptable replacement as well (laughs) interchangeable recommendation yeah they're interchangeable um Mm -hmm. but uh but no the the uh this movie i mean i i don't know why anyone would be shocked it's it's one of the coen brothers the that regularly make amazing movies mm-hmm. um tomatoes has it at a 94 yeah um, yeah they really understand uh narrative and tension and keeping you very invested in the stories like on the you know from true grit to there will be blood i think they had a hand in true grit right that was theirs too. Uh, yeah, they did a uh, an adaptation of that that novel. Yeah, yeah. and then Which there will they, be blood. They adapted more the novel rather than remaking um, the old John Wayne. Mm-hmm. Yep. But yeah, like they do great original stuff. They do great adaptation. Um, yeah, it's it's a really. It sounds weird to say that Macbeth is a really good time, but it's it it's a, a really well put together um, film. That <laughs> it's like, listen, really, I promise. It's not like when you had to read it in yeah, like 10th no, grade. Yeah, well, no, like they, they just do super interesting things with because they're shooting largely with digital cameras, they do a lot of weird landscapes, uh, a lot of weirdly composed shots that you wouldn't be able to get physically. Um, and it's just, I highly recommend it uh, to anyone who's who's interested in that type of film. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if it's you know romeo and juliet was pg-13 which i don't know the rating system is weird <laughs> um, i i don't know why tragedy of Macbeth is r but whatever <laughs> i don't i don't rate movies either um let's see the other thing let's yeah i'll i'll go in descending order of highbrow versus lowbrow um so no, zach zach has such a interesting palette in that <laughs> i feel like zach really only like literally licks the bottom of the barrel like after it's been emptied out and there's just dry desiccated things down there he just scrapes and just like mm. or he has the very highbrow taste and he's like i really loved you know this interesting application here where the narrative structure was defined in this way and the character development over like this entire section i think was really good and then he's like oh but you know what this other thing their heads exploded real neat and that was amazing yeah <laughs> well um yeah like so so this will highlight exactly what you're talking about so the second thing i wanted to talk about was uh curse of chucky um which is the let me look at it real quick it they is the also st- do interesting things with digital cameras no no. uh no no well so so the reason i recommend it um because it, it is the sixth movie is this is a movie where they move back into the horror feel of the very first child's play. Yeah. Yeah. Because like up to this point, it was, it kind of got towards Freddy Krueger and that like, it became about like, Hey, here are these two dolls. Look at the tits on this one. (laughs) Like parody. um, 
Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. like I feel like I want to say that one of them, like they were just making absurd cum jokes the entire movie. Like it was mm-hmm. probably Seed of Chucky. Um, I like mean, they, yeah, they have the name there. It's they're gonna they're gonna delve into that. Yeah, um, and I mean the, the the reason that I have this is that um, so right Chucky around, Seed though would that just be like Play Doh, like white gooey Play Doh? You I know. know. I don't know. It's been a while since I've watched that one. Like, I tend to skip Bride and Seed of Chucky. Um, but uh, we were watching it because Amazon had this this thing where it's like all of the movies up until the 2019 remake of Child's Play or re- reboot of Child's Play uh, are on high def Blu-ray. And it was like eight bucks. <laughs> so it's like, OK. Yeah. And uh, Curse of Chucky is really, really interesting. It's... Um, only one location like it happens in one house Mm -hmm. um and the uh main character is disabled um so even within that house she's further limited in where she can go um and it's it's a very tense movie who plays Uh, the main character uh brad duriff's daughter okay in real life uh fiona duriff okay um when did this movie come out uh let's see that movie came out in 2013 okay interesting what sparked you into this was it the like rewatching the mark mark watching the mark hamill one yeah re-watching the mark hamill one really because the um the mark hamill remake is surprisingly good mm-hmm. um <laughs> given given the track record of child's play movies like mm-hmm. because the like most of them are bad like <laughs> the first two are good mm-hmm. um i would say yeah the first two are good uh child's play three sucks bride of chucky and seed of chucky suck um curse of chucky's decent like i'm saying and then cult of chucky is uh, a big old limo um mm-hmm. and then yeah child's play 2019 is actually really good um especially in a smart connected internet of everything's world we live mm-hmm. in um so yeah it's and it's like i said it, it kind of goes back to horror movie um roots rather than jokey um i'm making titty jokes over here mm-hmm. all killing teenagers mm-hmm. <laughs> movie um and let's see last two so the first of the last two um did you ever see godzilla versus kong yeah yeah i saw that when it uh came out yeah so honestly i think it's the best of the series (laughs) (laughs) um you know the first one was good but i feel like they they way too they were way too focused on looking at the people involved mm-hmm. yeah. and no one gives a shit about the people in a Godzilla movie. Like I hate to break it to whoever came up with that yeah. as an idea. Um, the characters are never interesting. Well, that's uh, the problem too, is that they never, it, I feel like they, they don't really often hit the mark to where you're invested in these characters in lieu yeah. of the you know the big fighty fighty monsters and i feel like not to segue too long but uh the bumblebee movie 
I think with oh, Haley yeah, Seinfeld. He's fantastic. Was great. And yeah. it, it hits on the point where while you can write the character interactions with the creatures and yeah. make it to where you're invested. And it may just be a problem of scale in one sense, because how easy is it going to be to have like characters interacting with the Godzilla monster? He's towering like seven stories above. Yeah. Um, well, but yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the uh, Godzilla versus Kong thing, they still focus, have some focus on the characters, mm-hmm. but I mean, largely it's Godzilla and Kong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because the, what was it, King of the Monsters? Um, mm-hmm. My wife, who loves kaiju movies, we saw it in theaters and she fell asleep during <laughs> because it's boring. It's mm-hmm. it's not very good. <laughs> uh skull island is a good you know kong movie um yeah it's entertaining yeah yeah king of the monsters was just it it again focused too much on the tiny little people and Mm -hmm. the other thing that those movies did were um try and make it realistic like and ground it in reality Mm -hmm. and it's like bro like I'm not coming to this Godzilla movie expecting hard science. Like you do not need to explain to me why this one Island is just mysteriously missing until the seventies when radar gets bit. Like, I don't care. Like, just. It's like, listen, the audience, audience isn't going to buy into it unless we explain exactly why this Island. Well, and that's why I like Godzilla versus Kong because spoilers, uh the the earth is hollow and there's this this magical zooming dimension that you can go into if you dig deep enough oh like, yeah that was great yeah that's fine i don't care fuck it <laughs> yeah let them fight around in an empty world i don't care yeah i don't need to know <laughs> just make it cool <laughs> yeah make and they did you know they had like a really cool ship yeah. that was designed that that flips through and then it has to like change gears right. really quickly I was like, yeah, you made the explanation cool. Yeah, it's like I'm I'm not watching a kaiju movie as if it were a documentary. You know, I mm-hmm. I'm watching it like I would watch a wrestling match. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's effectively what it is. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, it's it's very fun. Um, it's it's like I said, the best of the the legendary series. Um, mm-hmm. for sure, I would think. Yeah. Um. And, and they're talking about a sequel, I think, too. I think that was greenlit. Oh, really? Because I think so. I thought that Toho got the rights back after this one. Oh, did they? I thought. Let me let me see. Uh, yeah, they wanted to make more MonsterVerse. Uh, okay, yeah. So there are installments coming in the future. Yeah. Yeah, so they must have worked something out then. Because, yeah, I, I could have sworn that... Um, Toho, the rights reverted back to Toho after a set period of years, mm-hmm. which is kind of why they they rushed a lot of these out. Because... Yeah, which is is interesting to think about from a company perspective because it's like I can imagine Toho being like, okay, you can make yours, we'll make ours for people who want this flavor, and we're just going to cut like a licensing deal, so we'll get a cut of your big blockbuster things yeah yeah well and it's funny i actually do like the godzilla redesign for the first one they they slimmed him down for this one but if you watch the first uh, godzilla movie mm-hmm. um, 
he's a big old chunky boy. He's thick. Yeah. But I mean, it makes sense. He looks like a crocodile walking around or an alligator on mm-hmm. two legs walking around. <laughs> he's got those thick old thighs too. Like. Um, my, my understanding is that Japanese fans of kaiju movies refer to the American ones as cheeseburger Godzilla. Um, <laughs> which is kind of funny in itself. <laughs> uh, I feel like that's just a larger larger vision on our culture as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the last thing is a... I normally stay away from them because Netflix does not have the best track record with, uh, with documentaries. Um, like they, they tend to do the opposite of what the documentary is trying to do. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. Like making a murderer, um, left out a fair amount of the case files in that. And so it led to a petition getting started for freeing this one guy who very clearly probably (laughs) is more than likely the actual murderer, Uh, but they're going for drama. Right. And same with tiger King. Like, I mean, things I've read elsewhere. It's yeah. Carol Baskins probably killed her, her, um, her husband Mm -hmm. probably, maybe, I, I don't know. But, um, my understanding of how, like how Tiger King got made is that Carol Baskins was having this profile done on, on her and, and her rescue mm-hmm. and her, either her or her husband let's or uh, was asking the crew who else they were speaking with. And she said, well, they, they told her and she, she goes, Oh, well, yeah, as long as you don't speak to that nut job out in Oklahoma. And they're like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, the, the nut job. Yeah, just yeah, let you know us that, that, that meth head gay cowboy out in Oklahoma that he's been threatening me for years. It's like <laughs> we were not aware. Yes, <laughs> give, us, <laughs> give us his address so we can make sure not to go there. All right. Yeah, yeah like um, so, yeah, they don't have a great track record. Um, everything I've been able to find about the series called The Pharmacist is mm-hmm. it's actually a well done documentary. Um and those people are uh, Jenner First and Julia Nason mm-hmm. are the directors and two of the writers on it. But it's not very long. It's only about four episodes. Um, each episode's maybe an hour long. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the, the main focus of it is a guy who has kind of become a, an overprescription activist uh, named Dan Schneider. Um, in Louisiana. So uh, railing against people over-prescribing, right? Right, right. Okay. And he himself is, the, the, the way he, he uh, became this <laughs> activist is he I kind of like the idea where instead he's advocating for over-prescribing things. <laughs> no, the opposite, the opposite. Um, mm-hmm. so, so he, um, you know, he is a pharmacist. And that, that what led him to this is that he... Um, his son was was killed in a a drug deal right and specifically for his son was addicted to oxycontin and he he locates basically a a doctor who's operating a pill mill Mm -hmm. um, in in new orleans like she has her her hours posted for her clinic and they're like 
they're like 9 p.m. to 5 a.m., right? And so, like, he goes, and there's just this massive line of people going out the door, right? Mm-hmm. And he's he starts filling up these prescriptions, and they're coming in, and they're all coming from this one woman who's who's running this clinic. And just, like, massive amounts of Oxycontin. And, like, there are a couple of things that he's talking about where part of me was, like, I don't know, man, you didn't go to medical school. Like maybe you shouldn't um, deny service to people because you don't agree with the medicine that they were prescribing. Mm -hmm. But like when you see the video evidence of like, yeah, it's 3 a.m. and she's got 200 people standing outside of her one room clinic. Uh, And oh, yeah, no, she's prescribing thousands of scripts of Oxycontin in large amounts and large volume. right it's and and you know they interview this lady um who eventually loses she lost her uh, medical license in louisiana Hmm. um but uh let's see she yeah like in her interview she she's talking about how she was in a, a car accident or whatever and she was prescribed oxycontin and she took it and she got off of it and she was fine and it's like yeah, but it's it's like way more addictive than heroin. Yeah. <laughs> like you should know that as a doctor. I yeah. feel like you know that. That's why your hours are 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what you're doing. Jesus. Um so yeah, it's a really interesting insight. Um it was a really well done documentary. Like I found myself flipping sides. Like initially I was just like, okay, this guy seems like a busybody. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, he got into it because his kid was killed. And it's like, okay. And then it's like, well, then he also did not prescribe or uh, fill the prescription for this eight year old who I don't know who would give Oxycontin to an eight year old. So I was just like, well, he's not a doctor, but that does seem a bit much. And then you get the interview with the doctor who lost her medical license for doing this. And it's like, oh, wow, no, she is a huge piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a, a roller coaster. Um, but, yeah, uh, it, but yeah. it, it's amazing, like, how you can demonize, how people like that can be rightly demonized. And then you have, you know, the, the people that are actually pushing from a really big perspective, um, you know, an industrial sense, like their company manufacturing pushing this out and they don't have to deal with the same level of consequences because they have much larger bank accounts oh yeah the sacklers like they yeah it's terrible well let's let's move on to uh resident evil for an hour and a half yeah before the sacklers like hire like one of their Uh, 30 30 uh, lawyers lawyers. to sue us for defamation into the ground well no i mean they were convicted um, oh they didn't have to admit to wrongdoing though right like, but i mean they had to they they uh, started trying to weasel out of having to pay the fines so mm-hmm. you know, i figure if, if they can weasel out of paying fines and holding up their end of the bargain that's <laughs> i'm mm-hmm. just saying that the sackler family runs purdue pharmaceutical and they may or may not have way too much information about how addictive their product is that they yeah. did for insanity <laughs> Um, but yeah, so Resident Evil 4 um, came out January 11th, 2005. So that's mm. what, 17 years ago? No, 
Seven, yeah, 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. About that, that'll give people an idea of when we're recording this. Um, originally for the GameCube, um, there were, and this is my favorite part of the story. <laughs> I'm gonna mm-hmm. go into these. There were four different versions of this game that were discarded. <laughs> there, mm-hmm. there, are, there were five reasonably completed versions of Resident Evil Four, which to me is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I yeah I, I guess I'll just go into them and we'll we'll go go through them and and talk about them and and then the game and how it impacted us and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, if that works for you, yeah, sounds good. Um, so the first version. <laughs> um, it, so at this point, um, Shinji Mikami is no longer in the direction role. Um, he is more of a producer. Um, so the person directing this, Hideki Kamiya, um, directed the first version. Uh, it was written by the Resident Evil 2 uh, writer, um, and Su- uh, Noboru uh, Sugimura. Uh, Kamiya wanted uh, the the cool and stylishness to, to come through, like in, in terms of it being an action game. Mm. Um, he wanted Leon to be cool. <laughs> Right. Um, he did not like the fixed angles that Mikami like insisted on, and so he just up and changed it and made made the cameras dynamic. Um, apparently, the story was about the mystery behind the body of Tony, who was the first draft name of the PC. Um, and 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 after a while, this this spun off and became a, an entirely separate game called Devil May Cry. <laughs> Which doesn't obviously have a very stylish protagonist at all. It, so, so Mikami finds this out and uh, finally convinced the staff after the game was more than... than uh, like. I found a range of completion. Like the game was either 40% complete or it was 80% complete mm-hmm. before Mikami was able to finally convince the staff and Capcom that no, no, this is, <laughs> this is not resident evil. This is drastically different, <laughs> which I don't know why it was that complete before he was able to convince anyone of it because mm-hmm. like, there there are multiple stages you're going through i say this as if i make video games for a living mm-hmm. but but like knowing how how movies are made i would assume a similar workflow happens in mm-hmm. big video games being made um and this is still the era where there's not really distinction between triple a versus any other type of game mm-hmm. so devil may cry like I don't know. Have you played the first one? I played it um, on one of the older systems. So like in a PS2, PS3 era. Yeah, PS2. Like someone had it and I picked it up and played it and was like, oh, this is really interesting. Yeah, it's it's um, you can definitely see that, that Bayonetta draws heavily off of that. Like Platinum Games, mm-hmm. um, any one of the ones that they make draws heavily from Devil May Cry. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Which up until this point, we've had of the mainline games, we've had three fixed angle, <laughs> very slow, very um, survival horror games. Mm-hmm. Um, 
well, I guess four technically. Um, and then they they move to bouncing around the screen and just endlessly pumping your enemies full of lead. Like I can, I don't know at what point like why it would be as far as forty or eighty percent complete before you're like, yeah, this is different. This seems like a different game. <laughs> I think just seeing the, I think uh, it it belabors the point that the way that we look at this is from seeing the completed game. Yeah. And then in relation to everything before, it's yeah. like, how is this even possible? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like if you started developing a Mario Golf sequel and then yeah. you ended up with Duke Nukem and you're yeah. like, how did this happen? How did you get there? <laughs> um, so, so It's what- like, well, I wanted Mario to have more attitude, so... <laughs> He started taking roids and then smoking cigars. <laughs> okay, I guess. Um, yeah. So yeah, so so after this, they they move on to the fog version uh, mm-hmm. of the game. Uh, it it commenced in uh, towards the end of two thousand one. Um, it was about forty percent finished by the time it was canceled. Um, so this one focused on Leon Kennedy infiltrating U- Umbrella's uh, European headquarters. Um, still, which, tradition- which is still something I feel like we still need a game for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, not just for Leon specifically, but they talk about that as something that, uh, not to go too far with Code Veronica, like yeah. she left to go infiltrate headquarters. And I think that, remembering the VGM that happens at the beginning of Code Veronica where she's like running and they're shooting at her and she's obviously like escaping from the headquarters. But that would be really cool. Um, and I don't think we've still gotten gotten a game like that. You still haven't. I Well, and I mean, you know, this build of, of the game specifically, it was still focused on the traditional zombies. Um, mm-hmm. It had things that it, it's, it's funny knowing where we're going because mm-hmm. there are things that you'll see pop up in other places like when mikami comes back mm-hmm. because like the other thing that's in this is that leon is infected with the progenitor virus mm-hmm. and he gets special powers in his left hand because of it oh okay that's, that's recycled for, for seven <laughs> yeah so recycle for seven also for krauser Person. This build was the first one that they they tried first. Oh, person okay. With, like, well, it, they also used that idea with it with Krauser uh, in Resident Evil Four. Mm. The Krauser fight, he gets like a really weird arm, like yeah. appendage too. Mm-hmm. Um, next up is Hookman. This is two thousand three. <laughs> um, I think it's probably one of my like it's my favorite almost ran like it's my favorite uh build that 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 was an alternate build Mm -hmm. um it is uh so 2003 is when they started it um at this time they changed the name to the phantom biohazard 4 um still leon kennedy is the protagonist uh but it's focused on uh, him being infected with a disease and trapped in a haunted building um he you know was supposed to fight less zombies and more paranormal enemies so this is the one with the ghosts yeah yeah this is the one with animated suits of armor living dolls which Mm -hmm. come up (laughs) in eight 
for spoilers. Yeah. Um, a, a ghost armed with a large hook, which is the hook man that could not be killed. Mm-hmm. Um, kind, kind of like a progenitor for what Mr. X turned into, I think, in the remakes, where like you can't really kill him. Like he's just stalking you. Yeah, exactly. Um, the a lot a large part of the game relied on flashbacks and hallucinations mm-hmm. uh, kind of like meddling in, in there creeping into that eternal darkness type landscape which i don't know if you ever played eternal darkness uh no there like there's a lot of tricks played in that game where it's just like oh you're going crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> let's mess with the tv <laughs> um and over-the-shoulder camera for this one. Uh, there were laser sights that they worked on, but couldn't quite get the um, the the directional thing to line up with them. Um, and then they had uh, dialogue trees, choice trees included. So it's kind of like a like a more like a Mass Effect. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Mass Effect personally, mm-hmm. um, but but that's a choice there. <laughs> um, uh, no word on the percentage of that being done when they scrapped it. Um, I would imagine it was pretty close to completion, mm-hmm. <laughs> given all, all of that information. Um, the penultimate version is uh, referred to as hallucination in the builds. Um, this one was written by the Resident Evil 3 writer Yasuhisa Kawamura. Um, it had Leon infiltrating Spencer Castle now. Um, mm. There's a lab inside, and there's a young girl in the lab that you free. Uh, there is a BOW dog companion um, on an AI team of Leon, the girl who you know has psychic powers, and the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, they scrapped that version pretty early in development because Capcom finally came back and was like, mm, "No, this is going to cost way too money because they way too much money because they had to." develop a smarter ai system than what they had the capabilities of designing okay um which i mean it's a good insight like there's a difference between ai for en- enemies and ai for your team like <laughs> there are different different uh sequences that they have to go through I guess. and we've seen the enemy for team members that is evident even in five and it's yeah. not that great <laughs> I, I would argue that almost the four AI is for the team member for Ashley is easier to deal with in some situations. I found. Okay. Yeah. Well, we the um, the the final version that finally came out, Mikami stepped out of producer role and took over directorial duty, which I think he wanted to do anyway. I think part of this was a problem of him having to give up control over his baby, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, staff was extremely pissed off as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of them that uh, did actually go to therapy because of this, um, because they, they, a lot of the staff also had uh, deep depressions because they kept having to um, redesign the game from the ground up. Like, he didn't want to keep... Well, let's let's keep this work of this build. Uh-huh. It was, no, no, we're getting rid of all of it and we're starting over. <laughs> the character designs, nope, totally wrong. Nope. Throw out all the models. Um, he, he, he felt that the way that they were progressing, his, his excuse was that it felt too cookie cutter and he wanted to make Leon cool. That's a quote. 
Leon had to be cool. Um, you know, would... you know what? That not to interrupt too long, but I feel like that is exactly why we get the conception of Leon in four now as super ultra cool. He's trying so hard to be cool, and I feel like the storyline. <laughs> The storyline and the game designers are like, oh, you want cool? I'll give you fucking cool. It's going to be so cool. <laughs> but you can tell he's a tryhard. Like, it's so... It's so know. great. It's so great. Um, All right. Yeah, and so, so yeah, they, they moved to the third person over the shoulder version, um, and then they designed the Ganado as enemies. Um, they're, mm. they're, they're basically fast, smart zombies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it finally came out in 05. Um, there were a number of ports. Um, you know, you, you get PC, Wii, mobile ports. Um, the only two games I think that are reported to possibly more systems are the original Doom and Skyrim. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's true. You know, you could probably go buy an Android tablet somewhere random, like one of those. Like uh, those tablets for like kids. Yeah. I saw someone else comment on this, like one of those learning plays. Yeah. And there's a port for Doom for that probably. Skyrim and also <laughs> Resident Evil 4. So you can play it on the learn and play. Well, it's it's funny the breadth of when they'll port it because they, they put out one uh, April last year in 2021 um, for the, the Oculus or the, the Quest 2. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which is funny. I was listening to a, 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 a the the Dog Zone Nine Thousand podcast mm-hmm. with uh, Sean Baby and, and Brockway, mm-hmm. and Sean Baby was talking about how yeah no I I bought the Quest Two specifically because uh, I wanted to buy Resident Evil Four for the eighth time. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's it's kind of lame. <laughs> There's it, apparently the the Quest version loses some of the viscerality by making it first person like it it like there's a layer of abstraction and it doesn't feel as um gritty and dark or, or whatnot although some of that could just be you know this game is 17 years old um, yeah it's like, hard for some of the assets because uh, i've seen some of the people playing the the oculus quest and it's yeah. hard for some of the assets to really stand up um because yeah. especially because of the way the perspective is set like you're over the shoulder, so one there's a level of depth of detail that you're not going to get when it's ported over to first person, right? And you're not going to get like the involvement of seeing a character in front of you, necessarily, and then you know having this enemy. So there's kind of like a, you know, it's like the difference, for at least for me, in looking at it, it's like when you have um, a really bad rotoscoped like human in like a digital or like animated world and it doesn't quite gel the yeah. same way because um, it feels that way because then okay i'm treating this as first person but these assets in this environment wasn't don't really support that kind of experience right yeah. well it's and you know like i said this this is a highly regarded game um it's spoilers not one of my favorites but um it's you know, it created third-person action games, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it popularized remastered editions. Like, they they just, like you said, they keep pumping them out, just like Skyrim. Mm-hmm. And this they, they kind of iterated on that as a business practice for this. Um, 
but I and I don't know if you saw this, but apparently uh, mid last year there's a copyright lawsuit on both this and Devil May Cry that was interesting. It was filed. Um, the artist uh, Judy, I'm gonna say Jurassic. Am I oh, I did see this. That? Yeah. Yeah, she's suing Capcom for using images from her book without permission uh, mm-hmm. for textures for both of these games. Mm-hmm. I just think it's funny that that one came from the other, and so both of them are guilty of using these stolen assets. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, that that was the the history portion that I got. Um, I'll I'll start off because I have just a really quick piece on how i uh interacted with this game um i got it on gamecube um i granted i was in in college at this point and i bounced real hard off of it because at the time the gamecube had uh or rather my my brother is the one who took over the gamecube um i had the the uh first one that the, the was remade and resident evil zero and both of those are similar enough to what i at the time conceptualized resident evil as mm-hmm. that when this came out i was just like this is not i can't beat this this is way too long for me to beat in like a weekend <laughs> and, yeah. um and i mean the, the plot is yeah i don't Amazing. know i just don't like leon <laughs> <laughs> he, like he is my least favorite of any of the characters um to be fair though uh because of course i'm gonna interject um he has more personality and like character focus than i'd argue not talking about the remakes like the two and three remakes yeah, yeah, yeah. but just the original renditions right. where you have really really a lot of people love it, but really poorly recorded dialogue um, <laughs> and really hammy writing. Whereas with four, as uh, action parody as it can be, it's in earnest and it actually has a tone that it's trying to set. Um, now, I think that's that especially is jarring is if you're playing, you know, two and three largely. And then you come to four and it's like, oh, this, what is this? Like, this is not how characters in Resident Evil act. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I mean, you know, just, I guess briefly, the, the story for most of the Resident Evil games is someone, some character gets caught up in uh, an unexpected situation, right? Mm-hmm. But we're having a character who's returning to a similar situation, kind of. He's... He's a government agent. I don't know how he like he was a what like a week long on the force cop, right? Mm-hmm. But oh, like, I don't. I don't think he was actually even officially a cop. I think he he in the rewrite because I'm thinking most recently in the rewrite for the remake, he specifically requests to come to uh, like Raccoon City. Um, oh right, yeah. Well, and no, he, I, I, and I mean, in the original arc that this takes place in, like, he was, he was like a rookie cop, I thought. Yeah, he was like a cop for like a day, you know, if that, because. Well, yeah, and then he becomes a, it, six years later, he is U.S. government agent, Leon mm-hmm. Kennedy, um, who is 
on a mission to rescue the daughter of the president who's been abducted by a cult. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, what do I do with that? Like, that's not a Resident Evil plot. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, the cult members turn out to be Ganado, but, like, I don't know. Like, it's just a real weird, like... It's an action movie plot. It, yeah. It really is. And it's, yeah. it's unlike any of the other games that we've had at this point mm-hmm. in, in our run. Um, at least as far as mainline games go, like code Veronica is a little bit more actiony, but it's it, not to this extent. Yeah. I think, um, I think what it is too, is that if, if you look at the development of resident evil games in general, and you know, we briefly talked about the first one and how it was conceptualized as a remake of an older game that I think was like a 2d game. You know, it wasn't yes, like, a, yeah, yeah. And so that's like scary house, you know, monsters in the house. And then the conceit is like putting together some puzzles that are in the environment. Yeah. And so, but it still feels like, oh, it has like that um, almost like uh, 80s horror vibe to it, especially when you listen to the soundtrack. You know, yeah. the famous like uh, flute trumpet sequence where it's like, if you've ever heard that one, it, it sounds like someone doing like a really bad rendition of like a Carpenter, like a John Carpenter soundtrack. Well, you know, it's it's funny. It, it, it kind of sounds like they were leaning into the soundtracks for old like folk horror movies, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, like The Wicker Man and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. You mean for four or one? for four okay um like the for, from a music standpoint like yeah it, it seems like they were going for that like i can definitely hear the the attempt at carpenter oh i was um, talking about for one in the, like those weird bad synth things oh yeah um okay well i mean yeah like i, I still remember four having more of like a folk horror feel that just kind of falls flat given what the rest of the series is it's it's um, much more like uh there's like an atmospheric element to it as well yeah uh i i feel like with with four specifically yeah. um uh safety music is on point though it's it's inarguable yeah. it's so good um that's definitely something that they try to hit hard on with uh the safety music has to be a banger in every resident evil movie or resident evil uh video game game yeah um so i was looking at the timeline because i was kind of interested in the overlap between the first resident evil movie which came out in 2002 yeah and then the release of this game which was um oh five so three years later basically three years later now normally you wouldn't really ascribe too much to that depending on how long the development cycle was right but i feel like with their initial right off the bat like they were trying to do something more actiony right yeah in 2000 when they started yeah they they were immediately like okay it's got to be an action game because that, yeah. that's what turned into Devil May Cry. Yeah. And so they keep on going over it. They obviously are aware of the success of the original Resident Evil movie. Yeah. Like Wes Anderson pumps it up. I remember like a trivia factoid where I think um, 
Let's see. Yeah, I think of the four, the penultimate one would have been what was largely being worked on by the time the first Resident Evil came out, which is yeah. the one with the girl in the lab that he finds, and then there's an AI. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the, the factoid was relating to how Romero actually had a pitch a pitch for the first Resident Evil movie. Like he was able to oh, pitch it to he? Capcom. I think so. When I when I was looking up stuff about the movie. Well, I mean, you know, he, he directed the um the Japanese commercial for yeah. Resident Evil Two, which mm -hmm. is phenomenal. Like, yeah. Yep. I might I've put that in the footnotes of this episode because yeah. I recently came across it again. I forget how. But I was just like, wow, I would totally play this game. Yeah. And so he uh his pitch got denied and then Capcom's like, Nope. Wes Anderson, this pitch is great. This is exactly the kind of garbage we want. Uh, Paul W. S. Anderson. Oh, Paul W. S. Anderson. Wes Anderson would make a very different Resident Evil movie. A, a different, a different kind of movie Everyone for sure. Everyone would be so twee, just covered in gore and twee as hell. Yeah. So, um, you know, Paul W. Anderson has his take, and then just. Uh, I feel like, regardless of what fans of those, it just shits the bed all over the series and oh, etc. There's there's some parallel development though that if you complain about five or stuff with four, you're getting exactly the same flavor in the Paul W. Anderson movies. Like no no, no shot for shot no no shot for shot. Paul W. Anderson recreates one of the fight scenes from Resident Evil 5 in one of his later Resident Evil movies. Like the shot where Wesker throws his glasses off. Oh, yeah. He does that in uh, Extinction. Yeah. 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 Shot for shot recreates it. And they're, they're parasitic, I think. So how successful, and this is the point I was trying to get to, is that um, they went with uh, Paul W. Anderson. And so you get the sense that, oh, okay, we want to, like, they want a particular kind of, like, more action kind of take, not traditional horror. Right. Um, and then the game tries to have an action beat, and it veers off and becomes more action-oriented. They obviously see how successful the first movie was, even though they were already good in that take, but it's sort of vindication for that, I think. Sure. At least from like a conceptual standpoint, that oh, this did really well. Audience seems to want this kind of direction, um, and you see they run with that momentum because they run with that with four, stronger in five, and even stronger in six. So yeah, six I think is the closest to an adapt a video game adaptation of the film series. Yes, yeah, yes, the garbage film series. <laughs> Garbage. It's not garbage. <laughs> it's hot garbage. The particle effects of of when even in that scene, which Paul W. Anderson copied from the game, his smoke effect that Wesker takes on is shittier than what you see in the video game. Like the video game has like particulates and etc. that come in. The the scene in the Paul W. Anderson movie is basically like a click of After Effects and adding some blur. <laughs> adding some blur and then like a a, a cutout of like saturation um anyways well, i can tell you 
right off the bat why uh-huh. he keeps being able to make those. They make is, money. Is, yeah, he makes them for like 20 and 30 million dollars and they make like 400 million dollars at the box office. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. I it's, feel like we're going to get we're going to get a kick back in that direction um due to the the flop of the more horror oriented Resident Evil that came out. And how that just I feel did badly. Like that flopped for outside reasons, though. Like, I mean, I haven't seen it yet. Like, I, mm-hmm. I just bought it yesterday because mm-hmm. I saw it. It was, um, it was available through Prime. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. Everyone I've heard talk about it seems to like it. The people Mm-mm. who I trust. You know? No, no. The people that you trust are a particular class. Large fan reception, from what I've seen on an internet fair, basis, fair, yeah, is is garbage. It's hot garbage. That's weird. So I feel like be- yeah. on top of that, and also because it didn't make money, we're gonna, gonna someone we're gonna come back to Paul W. Anderson. He's gonna make another shitty six sequence of movies. I um, gotta be honest. I would I wouldn't mind seeing a Hookman or a Fog or a Hallucination. Yeah, <laughs> movie version. So um, I guess to go into my uh, interpretation of four, yeah. kind of my. Um, so for, I think, um, at least for me in comparison, even with, uh, the remake of three, uh, which I mentioned there has that, um, mystery element mm-hmm. that I think is missing in three, um, the original and also more specifically the, the remake because at least in the original, you're encountering the nemesis monster for the first time. So it's like, oh, what is this? What are these choices, etc.? When you do the remake, and when three gets the remake, not to go too far into th- three again, yeah, um, there's not much mystery as to what the nemesis is, and we've already seen how Mister X behaves, and he doesn't really borrow from Mister X in that large of a degree, other than little sequences. Right. And I would argue that Mister X is a more imposing villain in two than. Um, Nemesis ends up being in the three remake. Um, so there's no mystery with the story. You know, they cut out segments uh, from the three, the three make, which I guess is what I'll call it. Um, three make. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it just, it didn't, it didn't build up enough on, I think for myself and a lot of other fans. So with four, at least on initial like interpretation and re-engagement with four, which I, from what I understand in rumor mill is actively in development. Um, with four, it's like, okay, how did Leon end up here? Why does he look so different? Um, why is he so cool? Um, you know, why is he able to do the dragon suplex that Guile does? <laughs> if you think about that, it being a Capcom company, it's kind of funny. Yeah, uh, he yeah. literally does the dragon suplex that Kyle does as a grab move yeah. where he grabs them and then he slams them back and like destroys his back in the process. Oh, it's so ridiculous. And he has the kick flip. He's got a kick flip and a straight f- kick. And I think, yeah, the, the kick flip, which is great. Yeah. You know, this might as well be like Ryu and Guile are inside Leon's body. And so then you have the mystery of the Ganados and et cetera, which I touched upon in the last, uh, podcast episode and then you just have like the ganados and then eventually you get to the castle and you get like this action interaction everybody's action movie eyes in 
and four. And I think the more the more you can come to peace with that and understand it, the easier it is to enjoy the game uh, in a sense. Um, like it's like true lies in, in some sense, the game, but with Resident yeah. Evil elements. Yeah. Because everybody's like a caricature of what they're supposed to be. Like right. uh, Lord Sadler, like he's just sitting there like chewing up scenery, <laughs> having dialogue. He has his giant uh, pointy tent- tentacle thing that we see later come out underneath his robe. Yeah. Um, you got uh, some of the other characters. I got their names. Um, yeah, Ramon, Salav- Ramon Salazar. So the little small, um, you know, uh, who has like some kind of genetic predisposition to like dwarfism yeah. or something is the idea. But Torres Mendez, he's the big guy who's like silent, who doesn't really say much except occasionally. So that's like the big brawler who is like the step below the main baddie, which would be the Lord Sadler character. Uh, Jack Krauser. You know, you fight him in a weird temple area, and he's got like these drones that come at you. Which, sure, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's just an action movie stereotype. Yeah, and you know they they hack Lord Sadler and Lord Salazar end up hacking your comms frequency just so they they can call you up and troll you, and you have like banter between you and them as part of the game. Uh. You know, and there's a lot of like really great like action movie hero um, dialogue bits that are like what you'd see in uh, like a True Lies or something like that. You know, I'll be back or, you know, have a nice day, etc. Leon goes, well, you're small time, Sadler, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and that's a fan favorite line because it is so schlocky in action movie. uh kind of themed so in in spite of the tone and the story like if you're if you realize it's that ada's now just like some secret agent like super type as well she's got like her hook gun that you're able to move you know (laughs) she she can do like crazy moves hook gun yeah like so good she's not she's not dressed up in like actual tactical combat gear she's like wearing the big long red dress Mm -hmm. so she you can see her legs slit you know yeah uh and so it's just it's it's along that line you know um the uh the end of the scene went at the end of the game just still marking on tone yeah you know you have uh, ashley's character she invites Leon to like go have some overtime with her, which obviously implies like she's hitting on him. And Leon's like, no, you know, in his heart internally, he's like, my heart is still for Ada. She's the only woman, you know, also, you know, Ashley's obviously underage and et cetera. So yeah, at least for him, um, I think she's probably like 16, 17, 18, 19. I don't know. Yeah. In any case, um, so, and then you have all the uh, the enemies, which are like caricatures. The Wolverine guy, the uh, the rogued uh, Los Enuminados members, you know, the ones with just the robes. You know, they got fire crossbows in some cases. They have like impenetrable helmets. Yeah. Um, so just like really crazy, like um, Ramon Salazar's giant 
animatronic sort of stone robot that chases after Leon across the bridge. So that's that's it for tone. Um, but I think for gameplay elements, I think it also has strengths. Um, it's not a open world game. You know, you're not really exploring yeah. uh, an yeah, open world. You're on rails. You're on rails, but I think the strength of the game, at least for me, is that you're always being pushed forward. Like it's an always move forward kind of thing. Um, like you get a, like for one, one specific scene, um, you get the sniper rifle. And you get the sniper rifle, and then you immediately see that you're able to, like, take pot shots of these ganados that are, like, on these cliff faces. And you can blow up their head, or you can shoot them, and that they fall off. And so weapon elements are introduced, like, right before you need them, and where they can, like, be of an asset. And so instead of it being like, oh, well, I want to be really careful, it's like, no, I want to bust into this area. Like, I want to use my sniper rifle. I want to uh, shoot people in the face to stun them. Then I can do a kickflip or a suplex. And so it's just drive forward kind of design, I think, methodology. Kind of how um, the Doom developers talked about when they did the Doom remake recently before Doom Eternal. Like they wanted to just drive the player forward. So it's like they see something, they we want them to engage with the enemy. And I, f- I feel like that's the kind of pacing they wanted for that game because you just want to keep on going forward yeah, and interacting with the enemies and, you know, combat can be pretty cool. You know, you can, you can be surrounded by Ganados, but if you shoot one in the face and you stun him and you get the action to do the kickflip, well, you mm-hmm. kickflip him, you probably kickflip the people around too. And so you've created space and now you can keep on moving forward. Fair. And so I think um, for me in that aspect that I don't really like really mechanics heavy games so i don't really play a lot of like call of duty where i'm doing like headshots and things like that or you know trying to snipe people or kill them with you know no scope or just with like a knife you know like i see in in some uh you know some fan wheels but it's the kind of thing where there's enough atmosphere there's enough like narrative there that i find entertaining it's not um spooky or really scary in a lot of sense um you do get scared when you're surrounded by ganados and when you're first playing it yeah and you're trying to win Um, especially because they move around so quickly yeah and they do they do that side dodge yeah yeah when you aim at their head and they go like this oh yeah (laughs) they do like the uh yeah the sauce move what do they call that the uh the electric shuffle yeah, they yeah. basically do like this little mini electric shuffle and swap their head over to keep you yeah. from shooting at them. Um, so for me, that's where the strength in the game is. The the way the mechanics kind of draw you forward, interesting kind of environments, and um, the schlocky sort of plot uh, that I've, I enjoy. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it definitely makes it seem more enjoyable. Like, I... I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to adapt this to a movie at some point. Um, even if it's a CG one, because, you know, they, they have those, those, uh, I think Netflix actually has one called infinite darkness. That's it's a mini series, but it's a movie. Like it's, it's only like four or five episodes. Yeah. I'm a bad resident evil fan. I still haven't watched that yet. 
Yeah, it's in my queue. I haven't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> every time I look at it, it, honestly, what it is, is every time I look at it, it autoplays the trailer and it starts on a scene of Leon talking. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to. I just don't like him as a character. He's <laughs> never interested me. <laughs> uh, I find him really interesting in the remake. Uh, the RE2 remake. I mean, yeah, he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> what, do, what do you want out of him, Zach? What more do you want? I don't know. Don't be so much of a cop, man. <laughs> He's not narking on people. He's not like, well, you can't smoke in this building. <laughs> no, there's just something about his interactions with other characters in the story. Oh, especially in remake. He's hardlining it too. Like he's, he's yeah, like, he's... he's trying to tow like, Oh, the law and order line. Yeah. Yep. Well, I, th- I think we're, you know, that's that's a character thing that we see in two. And yeah. what I think they're trying to set up is that the experience that he has in the Resident Evil 2 remake fucks him over so hard that he just like, OK, I'm just going to like do my thing, you yeah. know, uh, and that's what we'll probably see when we get to the remake of four that they're doing. Oh, they are doing a remake. of. Four. Oh, yeah, it's 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 it, in. <laughs> Okay. In popular uh, rumor mill, yeah. yes, in popular rumor mill, it's been in production for a bit. Well, now this one is pretty long, right? Like it's. Let me see. I have the times written down to beat. Um, yeah, Resident Evil so far is the longest. Um, it, it, Resident Evil Four is uh, is sixteen hours. Mm-hmm. The first three are about six. The remakes. RE1 is 11, RE2 is 8, and then mm. RE3 is 6. Um, so yeah, Resident Evil 4 is the longest of the series as well. Which, I I don't know, I, I've gotten to a point where 8 to 10 hours for me is like the sweet spot for a game. Like you're, I can appreciate, you're killing me, Zach. You're killing me. Well, I can appreciate someone wanting much longer in a game, much more immersion and stuff, but like if uh-huh. it's super long and I put it down and walk away from it, I'm not going to go back to it. Like I'll forget how to play. I'll forget what's going on. And I'm just like, eight to ten hours I can do. Yeah. I think, like 14 I think... is a little bit more doable. 20 plus, and it's like, I no, I can't. <laughs> I think I think you're a special case as far as you know in relation to a lot of other side things that that factor into that. <laughs> uh, none of which you know are really uh, you know any kind of fault of your own, etc. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of gamers that are just in general that do have that kind of conception. I know yeah. busier, and I think that's why the Call of Duty players of the world exist, like yeah. people that buy a new system who buy a PS5 and they play just Call of Duty every time it comes out every year. See, I don't get that. (laughs) You know, I I like a diversity of games. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I'm not stuck in the rut of just because I do know that there are people that play um, just Call of Duty and or or just sports games. And that's Mm -hmm. it. Like they don't like I like playing a diversity of games. I just I don't have time anymore, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which sucks. Um, do you though zach do you or do you just need to make time for other things because i think you got time my friend you you do a lot of stuff 
you do you do creative things. You consume a lot of media. I think yeah. that for your allotment of time for gaming, that yeah. you only want this is like your perfect chunk size, which is fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean that that's that's really more it. Like mm-hmm. if, and it might be even an attention thing. Like if if I get to a certain point in a game and I know how it's going to end. Mm-hmm. I will, or if I suspect I know how it's going to end, I'm going to be like, hey, Google, does blah, blah, blah end with blah, blah, blah mm-hmm. dead in a street somewhere? Oh, it does? I'm not going to play it. I'm not going to play this <laughs> game. Like, I know, <laughs> when you consume a lot of media, I think it makes you less patient for wanting to sit through a lot of things to get to a point that you know you're, you're going to end on anyway. Isn't that, um, though, like, we were just railing at the people, the last book page people? I think you're outing yourself a little bit in that respect. Well, no, so I don't I don't look at the way a game ends before I even play it, mm-hmm. I think. I think there's a difference there. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, that's really splitting the hair there. I think because what, what that is is, like, anticipation – of like, let's say I was told the spoiler for something, and then I was like, "Oh, well, I don't want to watch it now because I know exactly how it's going to end." Um, but you still sought out kind of the confirmation there in that scenario, or let's say you you were omniscient enough and had familiarity with narrative structure, which you do, yeah. to where you could see where something's going to go. Is it is it the, the... like? So I want to confirm that that's the case. Like if I see. If I see um, spoiler warnings posted and I'm reading and it starts to diverge from what I'm expecting to happen, I'll stop reading and I'll continue either playing or watching the show. Or mm-hmm. um, yeah. So I, yeah. <laughs> as, as someone though, like I'm watching, like let's say I'm watching the uh, station 11 using example, right? Okay. I understand that this guy is not like the first time we meet the Tyler character. And he gets revealed to like be the prophet. I understand right off the bat that this guy is not a good dude. Like her, her sense that she's getting, yeah. And so seeing confirmation later is just confirmation of what I was feeling. But I think really the difference is there, and maybe it is for yourself that the process of that revelation was engaging enough. Right. Exactly. Like, so like, like my my delineation of why I don't I don't care about spoilers is if. If the thing I'm watching is ruined a hundred percent because I heard a spoiler, mm-hmm. it's probably not worth watching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if if I if you're interested, even if you know where a story's going, if you're interested in how the characters are interacting, mm-hmm. um, the lore of the show and how that impacts the larger, you know, story that's going on behind the scenes or whatever, like. I think that's different than just like, well, I might die, so I'm going to read the last chapter of this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, yeah, it's there's, the journey. The, there's in that in that case, yeah. the journey wasn't really fulfilling you at all to begin with, right? Largely, yeah, because mm-hmm. there I couldn't I, in that scenario set up. I couldn't see a case where you're going, oh man, this this show is really doing it for me. And then you watch and you see the end and you're like, ah, oh, no, it's more like this show is really not doing it for me. Let me, yeah, I'm just going to stop because yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, I did the same thing with, um, and granted, this is tangential. <laughs> um, I did the same thing with Punisher recently. Um, you know, I got four or five episodes in and I was just like, I I don't need to see how this sounds. I don't really care about any of these people. <laughs> oh, the series? The Netflix yeah. series? Yeah. Yeah, that was really... Uh... Really kind of a letdown. I, yeah. I am I am not the target audience for for that show, which is funny because I I actually think the um the Dolph Lundgren movie from the from nineteen ninety from Canon is great. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You start somewhere and then you see him dip his head like deep into that pickle barrel and just start sucking on those pickles at I the just... bottom. He's just like. <laughs> I live to disappoint Zach. you with my taste. I <laughs> say something interesting and then I say something absurd, huh? <laughs> yeah, you can see him dive deep in that barrel. Tell you guys, he gets the pickles from the top, but those pickles at the bottom, he still likes those too. They're still <laughs> good. They're mushy, but they taste <laughs> good. They're still tasty. Um. Uh, all right, so I guess at the at the end of this, where would this fall on your scale of favorites versus least favorite uh oof, um huh so so far well the thing about and i think this is the conundrum of being a uh a resident evil fan but really a fan of any genre or set of works that differs really strongly in tone yeah resident evil 4 is um probably my favorite more action oriented re game um and that's different from like my favorite horror themed element re game which is also different from my favorite (laughs) horror mix of action re game um which i think we're, we're coming up to later uh in in our in our conversation so this is probably top two of like most actiony versions. Okay. Um, yeah, and I'd say it's probably my favorite of the action trio, which I most likely argue is like four, five, and six. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, and I mean, for me, just in terms of what this, the remakes have a similar enough story. I feel like it's it's fine to rank them one, two, three, and four. Um, I don't know. I gotta go two, three, one, and four in descending order. I just I cannot get into four. <laughs> four is so good. You're so wrong, Zach. I, I mean, okay. I I can respect I can respect what it is. It's just it is. Not I don't I don't think it's the thing is I don't think it's part of the horror trilogy. Yeah. No. It's, no. It's, no. It's not. Yeah. No. So it's it's more like. It's the best iteration of what they did with five and six, I think. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's, that is true, I will say. Um, I mean, I have my favorites of the three, but um, it's probably objectively the best done of those three. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. yeah, I'd say that in, in far as ranking. I guess uh, touching on that, we could probably switch to five. Okay. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, and just peek behind the curtain. That's um, that'll do it for this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, current book club book is uh, Brandon Sanderson's Elantris. 
Um, I think actually that Stuart and I will be talking about that for the next episode. So yeah, I will um, <clears throat> put a bow on this and then we will see you guys in another couple weeks for Resident Evil 5. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>